I like to frame it as like a working hypothesis that I continuously update <laughs> based on my ongoing experiences and those of others. Part of my mind, like most of our minds, we have the part that has like an intuitive sense of reality, the world, ourselves, others, and then the part that can step back and um, analyze and divvy up the data and, and, and try to parse out. And I think ultimately it requires, and what I embrace is trying to hold the ambiguity, the not knowing piece of it, because that just feels honest. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast on love and liberation. Every week I try to bring you something that will either expand your joy or invite a new inquiry into how we live in these bodies and in these cultures and how it could be better or different to make you feel a little bit of magic and wonder and maybe think about things that we don't think about on the daily together. So I'll start with uh, painting a picture of how I came to know today's guest's work. Last summer, I was at the Schermutzelsee, which is a lake about 30 miles east of Berlin in the former East Germany. Very picturesque, clear, deep waters with cattails around the edges and summer homes. I had been fortunate enough to be there the year before to visit the home of Bertolt Brecht and Helene Wiegel, the famous playwright and dramaturg of Eastern Europe during the time after World War II. And they're very eccentric, amazing home with, you know, posters and memorabilia and notes from all of the famous intellectuals of the era and weird art pieces and their literature collection, which ranged from obscure texts on human sexuality to original editions of famous plays. I mean, very inspiring. Anyway, I'm out there with a group of German explorers, and you may hear a little bit in my speaking of these words that I grew up bilingual, I grew up speaking German. So it was a little bit like being home for me. I was offering some yoga and integration and therapy in conjunction with another retreat that was going on. And my friend Sukadas, who was on the show, I think episode 70, Wim Hof's breath techniques and cold exposure therapy and tantra and psychedelics, a very fun episode. He was there and he had a book in his duffel bag that was in English called Beyond the Narrow Life, A Guide for Psychedelic Integration and Existential Exploration by um, Dr. Kyle Ortigo, a PhD from California. I thought it was quite ironic that I had to go all the way to Berlin to find this book. And then not that long after I was at the MAPS conference in Denver to launch Radiant Farms, our gummy company. And there on the dais was Kyle talking about this workbook that he'd done. So his book really is a handbook for inquiring into your overall story of why we're alive. What what are these lives for? And his inquiry is really how awake do you want to be? And he puts it into the context of psychedelic integration. His first book was a professional volume called Treating Survivors of Childhood Abuse and Interpersonal Trauma. So this is very, very different. It's for the layperson, and it's something that I would look at if I was considering a psychedelic journey, or even if I wasn't, because it has some really beautiful core questions on your cosmology or how you see the world. So 
he based the book on his own clinical practice, archetypal research as education, and inside of the clinical practice, both the experiences that people brought to the meetings on their psychedelic experiences and their non ordinary states of consciousness experiences like dreams and other things like that, as well as what you would consider a traditional clinical practice, sort of investigating their own behaviors. But he attempts in his work to not create a binary between a pathology of, you know, you've got a mental health issue or here's a way you should be, but to really see things on more of a spectrum. And it's not just about living well in his work, but really living at the optimal and most engaged in awake state that you can in your own human experience. And as you sort of look at the variety of tools that he mentions in the book and sort of the breadth of the perspective, I mean, he even opens with a view of, you know, what's your cosmology, that you you enter into sort of a new realm, which, you know, he didn't use this term, but I did, of cosmic psychology. Like it's your individual self is nested in a much greater understanding of the cosmos. So with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Kyle Ortigo. How awake do you want to be? One thing worth noting is that you're going through the idea of the psychedelic experience as a parallel to the hero's journey. And in fact, treating the integration piece as the hero's return. And you're a little bit of a matrix and a Star Wars nerd thrown in and Lord of the Rings and all of that stuff. Though so, so you know, as as you're sort of Definitely. as you're sort of looking at these mythic and archetypal stories that 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 people live into whether they know it or not, right? We we live into those stories whether we know it or not. I liked how you did that, how you brought us through uh, what the hero's return looks like in each of these things, what the sort of archetypal characters look like. And it, it's the suggestion that you're gonna meet these in your journey space and not to be surprised by them. Yeah, or connect to these archetypal figures, right? Within ourselves in some way. There there might be times that we identify with the hero in a story or in a, a psychedelic journey. And there might be times where the shadow comes forward mm. and being prepared for all of that uh, is important because that's what embracing complexity and, and wholeness really requires. But yeah, the, the film background that I have and that passion was just an excuse to nerd out back in the day. And, and psychedelics in this work is an excuse um, and a good one to bring in the power of mythology. And when we think about the word mythology and mythic stories, we think about ancient times, even religious texts. But ancient times, a, a lot of the heroes of old and this this period that was pre-technology, pre-film, you know, pre-writing even. But myth in, in terms of its symbolic power is still alive today. And how we tend to connect with myth, sometimes it's still with books and sometimes it's still within our religious communities. But a lot of times at the broader level, it tends to be with film, certainly in the United States with a lot of folks. So these stories have meaning, various meanings to certain people. And when we find a film or a fandom that really we connect with on an emotional level, it can be a mirror to us about some of the themes that we're confronting in life, uh, the values that we have, the strengths and challenges that we may have, and the importance of community and allyship in most of these stories, right? It's never just about the hero. It shouldn't be about the hero, ultimately. 
right? But about the community. And that, that's what the return is supposed to be all about fundamentally, that there's a return to one's community and the sharing of one's gifts and insights, um, but not from a place of ego, but of service. And I, I find that idea really powerful. Yeah, you go out, you face your challenges, and you come back and bring it into your your close community. That's that's beautiful. I wonder on the mythic component, we've been steeped in a lot of different faces of similar mythologies and stories. And you know, some of those have been uh, the lone heroic individual or the Superman kind of figure. I like that you're bringing community in, but it begs for me the question of the introduction of new mythologies that could be kinder to the earth, the kind of mythologies that might come out of more indigenous or land-based traditions. And if you notice in the people that you work with, if they're coming out of a primarily Western mythic orientation, or if they're coming out of something that has more reference to a land-based tradition, if their meaning-making is substantially different from their journey experience around these questions of like life and death and time and space and interconnection. Really good question. And absolutely it's different because when we think about integration by itself, just of a psychedelic experience, like you're integrating aspects at least of the non-ordinary states of consciousness, some of the material, some of the experiences are coming up, but it's within your pre-existing psyche, your pre-existing life and community, your world, your worldview, like your religious existential framework about what it all means and how you situate yourself and all that. So it inherently is influenced by culture and these, these various places that we come from and where we return to. And so it's going to be a different journey for sure for people who are coming from like San Francisco Bay Area who are working in tech, which is a lot of the people I work with personally and, and my, my clients versus someone who's coming from uh, Central America or living in Peru. So a big part of our work as a therapist and as a psychologist is to try to hold this ideal that we meet people where they're at and we try to have an understanding of the things that are important to them and what they're coming in with and that includes their culture and not pathologizing any of it but helping them have a space to have these reflections about where they are um, what's meaningful to them sometimes question it and then come to a more conscious guided place with that and then translating that into action, into relationships, right? Each of these pieces that I just named are very rich and complex and layered. But I, I do really like how through since Joseph Campbell and his articulation of the hero's journey, we've had more criticisms about that. And some of the pieces that get skirted over are that are ethnocentric, even with this idea of like it being the monomyth, the thing that is shared across human psyches and, and cultures. And of course, it's never that simple. It's never that straightforward. And there's uh, ethnocentrism, just like there is egocentrism that, that we have to be aware of and mindful about. Um, and there are things that we can learn. I think when we have platforms with real cross-cultural dialogue and engagement, and that comes in many forms, we, we can come together and actually update 
these limited views that we may have. And so speaking to like the connection of the earth, the valuing of the earth, of non-human life and intelligence, of non-life, right? The majority of the cosmos, as far as we understand life, is not alive in the sense that we define it today on earth from our human perspective. <laughs> that might be an instrumentation problem or a conceptual framework problem. <laughs> it absolutely could be. How could it all be dead space? I just don't believe, I don't believe in dark matter either or junk DNA. Well, what, <laughs> what, is, what is life? Exactly. Like, where do we draw the line? between these things. What is reality? That's that's why when we start having deep conversations, eventually we get to these places where they're fundamental questions and we can take leaps of faith based on um, how we want things to be, how we were taught they were, or our experiences. But I think that's part of the dialogue. Yeah, I'm always very interested when someone goes into the journey space and they've had an ascension theology or they've had a... a the portion of the mono myth that it's all on them. And then they have an experience of falling into the arms of the earth and being held by the goddess or something like that that's completely out of the framework of their conscious mind. And like, where does that come from? You know, where, where's that information? Is it coming through their own ancient DNA and knowing? Or is it coming through barely visible constructs on the fringe of their cultural awareness? Or is it is it truly messages from other realms? Do you have a do you have a sense of that? <laughs> I mean, I I love these questions and it's not for me to answer individually, but of course I explore the possibilities. I think in my role as a psychologist again, like it's helping people explore and articulate these questions and these possibilities and to grapple with, sometimes even wrestle with, you know, how do I make sense of a, an experience like that? When that was even on my radar as something that could be possible, much less something I'm actually contemplating based on my experience. But yeah, I have, I like to frame it as like a working hypothesis that I continuously update <laughs> based on my ongoing experiences and those of others. Part of my mind, like most of our minds, we have the part that has like an intuitive sense of reality, the world, ourselves, others, and then the part that can step back and um, analyze and divvy up the data and, and, and try to parse out. And I think ultimately it requires, and what I embrace is trying to hold the ambiguity, the not knowing piece of it, because that just feels honest. That's hard in a world that like really wants to know. I was, who did I interviewed? Uh, Jonathan Schuler from the Meta Lab at UCSB. And he talked about generative and uh, deprivation curiosity. And that deprivation curiosity is like, you have to know. If you don't know, you're uncomfortable. And so you force an answer that you could like stand behind so you don't have to deal with the discomfort, you know? So in the book, like, let me just come back to this idea of how do we know and, and where do those unfamiliar constructs come from? Because you do put a map in there persona, identity, conscious mind in the individual. But then you extend that out. You you offer not just the collective unconscious, but also the cosmic unconscious, that there are that there are ways of knowing that are beyond the individual body and that possibly the psychedelic experience can offer us a gateway to connecting to these broader realms. And I find that very intriguing. And it's 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 also ties in with the indigenous uh, idea that the plants themselves, the medicines themselves have something they want to tell you 
And this is a space in which they are able to communicate with the human mind in pictures and in sound and vibration, which is a very different understanding of consciousness and intelligence as residing in agentic nature. You seem to leave room for that beyond psychology. Yeah. And that, that was kind of risky for me as a psychologist to write and even name that as a possibility. But I felt like it was honest because this is part of our dialogues that we have in the psychedelic community, right? So to, to not name it, to not acknowledge it is to dismiss it or to have it just live in the shadows. Well, it actually goes to the myth of, of how psychology has constructed itself on a field on this very material reality way of knowing. And so to do it, you're kind of shuffling that framework a little bit. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> I, sometimes I, I am not risk averse and I feel like, you know, it's important to just put things out there. And yeah, psychology is a field. I, I love psychology. I, I decided I was going to be a psychologist or at least a major when I was in high school. Ah. And I was reading uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh -huh. which is a great classic novel. And it, the edition I had had a uh, article from Sigmund Freud on the uncanny that was used. And I, I ended up using it to analyze uh, vampire figures and this idea of like a shadow figure that's kind of human, but not really human. And the particular types of unease that he evokes mm. in, in us mm. in our conscious egos. So I love the richness of these things. But um, in my mainstream psychology training, it was very science-based and there's a reason for that. You know, psychology as a field is relatively new and it has needed to uh, establish itself on a foundation, some shared foundation in the West, academic West, around uh, how to make truth statements with some evidence uh, to a general population that's not based as much as possible on some a priori assumptions. That's one of the ideas of science. Now, the execution of that is a lot more complicated. It's never that simple. But yeah, there is something that's lost when we privilege that type of uh, data and things that we can measure and analyze and study and to the exclusion of these other experiences that people have and these other aspects of being human, living in the world um, and trying to find meaning. So it's a tension I appreciate. Like I don't dismiss any of that work. I, I love it. That was a part of writing the book is going to the research and recognizing, you know, some of the scholarly work, but it had to be interdisciplinary ultimately, right? As I think anything should be if it's trying to, to explore some of these bigger questions. Well, you even give people a map on the known ways of knowing. I think there's something in there that says, oh, here, how do you understand this topic through your intellect and through your body? And maybe it doesn't say body, through your feelings. It does. But I, it does say body? Okay, thank you. <laughs> My friend, Kathy Joy, who's at Stanford, she just introduced a body of work around subtle intelligences and seeing if we could get those a little bit of respect in the dominant culture. Like the things that are maybe what they're what you would call the uncanny you know, in the work, like there's something that we know, but we don't know how we know that we've been sort of taught to not trust that, even though, you know, you, you're decades into Malcolm Gladwell's thin slicing, that oftentimes what we can't put into consciousness has a thousand small slices of information that have built up to your knowing without it ever reaching the conscious mind. 
So there's some beauty in what I feel is a blossoming period for psychology, spiritual psychology, cosmic psychology, archetypal, all of this stuff that is allowing for these questions to be asked in a new way, the ones you're asking. Yeah, I, I love that. How I understand one of these distinctions of different ways of knowing is that in, intuitive sense, the gut reactions, the things that are based on perhaps lots of data that's being integrated subconsciously, mm. but quickly, mm. right? Yeah. We distinguish, like Jung distinguish, intuiting versus sensing. And that's a helpful distinction. But for Jung, he's a theorist that I really respect, I've been guided by much more than Freud, but he talked about the, the bridging of these different ways of knowing and processing data in our world and our experience that ultimately that's what he thought was needed and important. And we all have our own personality based proclivities in these different directions, but it requires a full engagement with these different ways of um, interacting with the environment and ourselves and understanding things. So I, I very much value the intuitive for sure. And that that's probably the most important piece in many ways in, in my work as a psychologist. Yet I need to put on that that sensing data-driven hat too. Yeah. And I need to be able to shift back and forth as needed in response to um, the work or what's required in the moment. So yeah, I think this is a part of the maturation process in psychology and the zeitgeist change is to go back and forth between these different biases <laughs> that the field may have or different schools of thought may have because it's never about one side or the other it's about trying to hold more and more complexity while trying to, to find the truth in some sense right or at least some practical pragmatic truth i remember when meditation was uh, considered a non-science and then they started doing measurements and attaching nodes to people's heads and got all that stuff figured out. And, and now it's a main part of our collective treatment plan. And I have the feeling that, you know, your Jedi self that knows how to work with the force or at least believes it exists will somehow someday have the same kind of prescriptive treatment plan available. I prescribe three doses of the force every day, <laughs> but maybe you're, maybe you're doing that when you're telling people to journal. Yeah. Let's go back to your, your journal. So the structure of this takes people along inquiries into space-time, into the nature of the self. I mean, there's even like a primer in there basically on quantum physics. Like, hey, if you want to understand space-time, go and look at a non-duality. Superposition. Superposition, yeah. Heisenberg's principles, and quantum entanglement. I mean, that's some pretty big questions to to bring up when somebody's like just trying to get over their mother. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of the things that motivated me the most in writing the book is like, I'm going to start with the cosmos. I'm going to do the opposite of what people would expect <laughs> for a psychologist to do, a human <laughs> to do in this topic. So that was part of the joy and fun and creativity for it for me. But what I thought was important, that's important for every story, right, narrative, is to set the stage. And to set the stage from a scientific perspective, 
I wanted to do, even though I talk about quantum physics uh, a little bit, I have that table where I introduce uh, breadcrumbs, I think is what I call them. Yeah, <laughs> it's a small part. Breadcrumbs about where you could go down. Your your book as a whole, is it's tables and charts in there, some pictures. It's also people, playlists and recommendations for artwork to go look at. I mean, it's quite a quite a toolbox in there, but please continue. Yeah, I had to use my full self and I wanted it to be engaging and, and fun too, right? Not just dry. Yeah. But I started with the cosmos, but I wanted to start with some of the least controversial from the Western science perspective, just about the spaciousness of a space-time continuum, space-time, the four dimensions. I didn't I don't even go into multiple dimensions and all the various ways that theoretically they're discussed in mainstream physics, much less pop culture. Because I think just in something that seems so concrete, there is, if we're really grappling with these numbers, these scales of space and time, there's a sense of awe that can really come up. That's just an honest reaction to like, what, what is this reality? You know, in our best instrumentation and methods that we know of trying to understand it, there are, there are things that are just beyond our little small self human understanding, right? In our perspective, right? We go about in our commute, we go about where we live, even when we travel the world, like it is such a small, small, small corner of the solar system, much less um, the galaxy or the universe. So that sense of awe and mystery, and I think honest humility that comes from setting the stage of our story uh, in that context is uh, important. And it's, I think, often a, a part of at least the higher dose psychedelic experiences that people can have, that it shakes us out of our everyday sense of reality and self. And we don't have to go into these more speculative, at least from a Western science perspective, speculative realms and questions about the nature of reality. We can, we can go to what seems like the most boring materialistic worldview to, to get shaken out of our perspective. So I think that is helpful when we're embarking in a journey of exploration. Yeah, and, and cultivating that trait of receptivity, curiosity, openness as you're going into it seems really valuable. Let's talk, let's talk about your practice. So do people come to you with general psychology questions or do they come specifically once they've shown an interest in a psychedelic experience? These days, both. Both. You know, some people that I, I work with, most of them will come in with some general sp or specific mental health concern, like, you know, they'll frame it as depression or anxiety, stress. You know, these are the most common things. Trauma and PTSD, I, people come in with trauma exposure for sure, but they don't always recognize the roots, yeah, of some of what they're grappling with as being informed by trauma. Um, so that's very different than my work when I was at the National Center for PTSD and, and the VA where PTSD, we had a specialty clinic, like people are coming in with that focus, but it's still very much a part of civilian populations, usually different type of trauma. But the, the psych working in the Bay Area, the psychedelic interest for folks, a lot of times, People are coming in already having done psychedelics in non-mental health contexts or, you know, maybe retreats, maybe they work with an underground practitioner. And 
that is something that we open up from the beginning as an area of conversation and discussion, because a lot of times historically, people have not felt safe doing that with a therapist. Like psychedelics are just viewed as drugs, as a problem, like addiction issues. And so it's important, and the therapist may not know anything about that, these states of consciousness and experiences. But by welcoming that as part of the conversation, then as people make their own choices outside of, you know, my work with them, it becomes something that we can really explore and integrate and um, do some harm and risk reduction around because these experiences are not automatically healing or transformative for everybody. There are risks. So. It's very interesting that there was nowhere to go to talk about them. Yeah. And, and that you're providing that space. I have had experience in a more structured environment and a more clinical environment, as well as in underground and church kind of settings. And there is often very well-held container during the experience, but not very much after, like maybe a Zoom integration a week later, but definitely not the kind of personal handholding you would get if your entire worldview has been upended. So I, I love that part of your practice when people are seeking to participate in a clinical trial or to participate in a program, I saw, for example, that I think in this defense appropriation bill, uh, there was a whole tranche of money included to allow the VA to do PTSD treatment, for example, on any veteran who needs it. And I know that Justin LaPree just got his church approved in Texas to work with vets and first responders. So there are more legal opportunities for people to do this kind of work, do you do you refer them out? Do you help them find places to do it if they haven't? How do you help them decide whether to even do it, like whether it's right for them? Yeah, this is hard. This is very hard. And it's more difficult for us licensed professionals because we're governed by not just the everyday laws for all citizens, but even in those laws, like their local jurisdiction, state, and then federal, and they definitely don't agree even on marijuana. And it's going to be a long time before that happens. But we also have our licensing boards. So I'm, I'm licensed in the state of California, and each state has their own licensing board. Each profession has their own licensing board. And those guidelines are different state by state. In California, I, I'm not even really allowed to encourage someone to do psychedelics in a context that's completely separate from me, much less with myself. Like I, I can't come off as I'm um, encouraging that or proselytizing that. And generally, ethically speaking, from the field of psychology, we want to be very mindful about recommending treatments that are evidence-based for what we know, right, with the pre-existing literature. So all this probably sounds really boring to most people who aren't in the field, but it's so central to how we have to work and practice legally and, and thinking ethically, because we understand in this field just how complex people are, how complex relationships are, how um, there's a fiduciary responsibility we have as a field to put our best foot forward and to, to do no harm as we're trying to do good, right? respect all of this. So that that's a big preamble, but a really essential one in how I can even respond to a question like that. Most of the time, in my experience with clients, there 
already at this day and age, you know, well past Michael Pollan's book coming out, they're already aware of psychedelics and their use and the mental health field. A lot of them have already had experiences. They have a difficult time sometimes discerning how to go about having these experiences. So people are making their own decisions with that. I do not encourage or discourage um, explicitly, but I do uh, highlight and we talk about how to reduce any risk that may be associated. And that may be about, you know, if they're planning on choosing a retreat center internationally, if they're not testing their drugs that they're getting outside, like all this harm and risk reduction stuff that we would do if they were doing other substances, still very relevant in the psychedelic world. But then the the meaning making part of it, the integration part of it, you know, is something that is integrated into the therapy too. It's not a forbidden subject, but we do it from this place of really trying to be mindful. It's like an informed consent um, when you enter these realms. And that's not always the perspective that's taken as fully in retreat centers, as you're saying with the integration side of things, preparation too can be like that one, one call before a retreat. There isn't as much attention placed in the before and after and some of the possibilities that may be important as we're trying to give people an, an informed consent so they can make a conscious choice to the best of their ability. Yeah, you also offer an informed consent to the self in the integration journal where you're asking people to really weigh the risks and benefits, know why you're doing it, what is the best possible outcome, and, and what are you risking? So I thought that was a helpful piece also, like careful way of approaching molecules. Hmm. I'm glad that came through. Yeah, I think a theme that's really came to me multiple times is that psychedelics are powerful. Exploring the depths in these existential questions, that's powerful. And anything that's powerful deserves great respect. So being very thoughtful about these choices and how we set up an experience, our willingness to even ask some of these questions and explore them, right? is just embedded in really respecting that power and having some reverence for the human experience. Those are two of my favorite words. I even wrote a whole book called Reverence. So listen, I want, I want to talk about that reverence thing and um, how we hold it. So here's one of my existential questions about the field. So we have uh, people who've held the molecules, who've trusted the plants, who've held them alive, who've created rituals, who've known how to work with them, who hold them in community. And then you have this whole movement to demonize molecules that create freedom, make them illegal. And then as they're being rediscovered, they're trying to be absorbed into the dominant culture in these really power-based hierarchies and structures, which are repetition compulsions of the way the world is already working. And so we have these underground path and the dominant culture path. And it feels to me, like not to name names, but one particular dominant organization, it feels to me like on the surface, they're articulating, we're going to the drug approval route, we're going the study route, we're doing all these things. But underneath that, every single person in attendance is doing whatever they want. They're all like going to every drug-filled rave and therapy session and party and cacao ceremony slash MDMA. You know, it's like it's like they're saying one thing as if to be compliant with the dominant culture, but then they're really behaving in a free-for-all manner. I find that to be strangely 
like a playing along, but what's that thing called when you're playing along, but it's an opera, it's a comic, a comic opera where everyone knows they're playing along. I don't know of a single word for that, but (laughs) yeah, I understand like the sentiment, like, but it sounds like the tension though, is like, there's a double speak. The sentiment. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I can't really say one thing, do another. Yeah. There's a double speak and um, almost like you're trying to do it the government's way because you have to go through these hoops. I don't feel like for many of the people who are doing that, that it's coming out of reverence and respect for the potency of the medicine. Well, I I think the difficulty of even articulating a question like this is pointing to something that, that we need to find ways to, to articulate and to explore because you're naming an experience, something that in my framework is part of the shadow you know, the things that are harder to face that we don't want to face, we don't want to talk about, it feels risky to talk about, to explore, to name, yet is still operating beneath conscious awareness or beneath the, the conversations, the subtext here. And it's a legitimate tension. I certainly don't have an answer to how to go about this. I understand the strategy, you know, in, in America, at least in trying to correct some of the the ways that this kind of backfired in, in the 60s and in, in the 80s, right, with MDMA by working within the systems. There are more than one that we're having to navigate and that that is the strategy to create change that we desire in the world or in our culture society. Yet there's always been a counter movement of working outside the system and being kind of anti-assimilationist. And, you know, from my limited read of history and a a lot of different movements, like both of those are happening simultaneously in order for change to happen. It's very circular, but these strategies, it's not so clear cut that one works and the other doesn't. They're, They're both happening simultaneously and there are tensions within the community, in this case, in the psychedelic community, that are real and are important because these are some fundamental questions about how do we create change? Is incremental change enough? And this tension of like, do no harm versus do good, right? Um, Those sound like basic, easy, simple ethical principles, but they're often in conflict when we're talking about complex interventions, complex decisions and choices where there are pros and cons, these different paths. But, you know, part of that sense of like a, a double speak and the incongruence, like that can be a real trigger of a lack of safety for a lot of folks, especially folks who aren't part of that mainstream above ground conversation, feel like uh, things are being appropriated. And, and they've been excluded. They've been excluded from that conversation. You know, like a lot of the people who've been holding it for 20 or 30 years because they didn't follow a mainstream training program, they can't even get into programs like yours. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a sense of real frustration for a lot of those people also, I believe. For sure. And I, I would hope like if things go down this projected route, this optimistic one, that things are rescheduled, that, you know, these practices could be done above ground and legally in safe manner, that there would be a path for integration of of all these different schools of thought and experiences, because there's so much we can learn from people who've been doing the work for decades in different cultures, 
right? That there's real opportunities to work together because not one individual can, of course, do all the work, not one discipline, not one culture, not one group can. Like we, we do need to find ways to come together because we have different pieces of the puzzle and we need to value some of those more than we have traditionally are now. But these are hard conversations. And in order to have them, I think we have to recognize that it's not black and white. I, I love that you're articulating it in the same way as you would with an individual. Like it is definitely the shadow side, distrust and authority. All those components are coming up. Um, I think it'd be interesting to have a case study uh, and then have people from different positions inside of this emergent field to look at that case study from the perspective of mainstream clinical assist, from an indigenous perspective, from an experienced facilitator, you know, like just sort of a round table, almost like a care team on what they each would see in that circumstance. Uh, what a what a beautiful opportunity to to blend them. I would love that. You know, the closest analog I've found in my work as a psychologist was when I worked in hospice, where we had chaplains, we had MDs, nurses, psychologists, like it was um, social workers, like all of us were required and really caring for people and their families in the dying process. And I, I think that's just an honest approach to it. No one group should own this, but we, we need to all hold ourselves to standards and respect each other's areas of expertise. And there's so much potential for really good group team-based care. That's the ideal. <laughs> you know, putting that in practice is always a challenge, but I love it. I love that. You it, like the whole hospice model, take the hospice model and apply it to life. Yeah. Dying into life. Mm-hmm. And then give me a surround sound care team. I, I did want to mention one thing uh, on the MDMA piece. You know, when it was made illegal in the 80s, I just read Rachel Neuer's book in June when it came out. Have you read that yet? Mm-mm. It's it's the story of MDMA. And she talks about the once MDMA really took hold in the dance culture, alcohol sales plummeted. And that all of that stuff that happened that got MDMA demonized was actually funded by the alcohol industry. And that it was never actually dangerous to begin with. All those, this sort of quote unquote MDMA deaths from dehydration were actually from things that weren't MDMA that was because it was illegal or because it was underground, you know, tainted with other things like fentanyl now. So her book is excellent. She, she also speaks to this question, like you mentioned addiction in the beginning and, you know, people coming in with addiction, presenting with addiction. And I want to say Tommy Rosen works on this paradigm of addiction 2.0, recovery 2.0, sorry, recovery 2.0, which takes as its premise that all addiction is a pointer to the human birthright to expanded consciousness and happy and relaxed states of being, and that you're reaching for these things because they're the only way you know how to get there. And that if you begin to frame addiction like that and then bring tools in to get you to that place of, of unity consciousness or true joy, uh, without the crutch that that it's more helpful than demonizing it as a pathology. Actually, it's a helpful instinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And that's, that's part of embracing, again, joyfulness and positive states of consciousness and emotions, right? For various reasons, which have, have been demonized or seen as shallow, at the very least, at times. Yeah. 
But yeah, I, I like to think of it, you know, if you use substances or something else, like if you're getting to the motivation underneath, then that helps you clarify all the different routes available to you. And you can then, this is kind of the intellectual, rational side of the brain, but it's useful. Again, you can bring it in to see like, well, what are the risks and benefits of these different approaches, right? Because um, everything has side effects, everything, even meditation. <laughs> so you even know, meditation. Just, not prescribed for everybody. Right, right. There's a reason for it. Mm -hmm. um, what's next for you, hon? What's, what are you up to next? Well, I, I'm just really enjoying working with my clients. Uh, that is, is something that's so enriching to me that I get to do day in and day out. I also work a lot with the CIS program. I've been helping them in various capacities. And really that work, it, it's, you know, it's a training program and psychedelic work and educational program. But it's really, for me, I think about community and trying to, to build community, a, ideally a healthy community that can have these uh, conversations, this dialogue that can help usher in more and more of a network to hold space in all the ways that we can and to be the change we want to see in the world, right? That's the hard part. That's the journey of integration. Um, so for me, that's how I've been channeling my own journey uh, in, into this field right now. Well, I appreciate that so much. And the program that he's referring to is the California Institute of Integral Studies, which in general, also in its approach to psychology and, and the rest of the human experience has a very broad perspective. Uh, so if that's of interest to you, ciis.edu, and check it out. I think you can apply for that program if you are a licensed medical professional or if you are a spiritual leader in a acknowledged, dominant, ordained tradition. Uh, there are a couple of pathways into that, but none of you underground people, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. So I want to encourage everyone to... Uh, even if they're not actively seeking a psychedelic journey at the moment, to look at this book because it's almost like a workbook for, I think you use in the introduction the phrase, how awake do you want to be? It's a workbook to look at some of the deeper themes of being alive, and it's just so well crafted. I really want to acknowledge you for the deep effort and cross-topic knowledge base you had to develop to put together something this thorough. Thank you, Christine. That it means a lot. And you know, on the journey of writing a book, creating anything in your podcast, I'm sure too. For me, I know I was like, is this even making sense? <laughs> it's so ambitious. And and to be on the other side and to hear how it's landed for certain people and what they took out of it uh, has meant a lot for me. So I appreciate that greatly. Yeah. It's it's definitely making sense. And the podcast makes no sense because it started as a inquiry into how we live in our embodied selves as women. And then it, it just went in a whole nother direction. So I think we're on episode 125. And now it's everything on love, liberation of consciousness, and who knows what's coming next, you know. But the psychedelics piece has definitely become a recurring plank. I find it's one of the only ways to crack some of the psycho, the cultural prison that people live within, like where their worth comes from and who they are and, and um, how do they relate, how are they in relationship to others. Those uh, frameworks seem so solid and something happens in the psychedelic space that 
does, as you say in the book, really allows people to question that, produces a lot more freedom. So I'm a big fan of doing it, but with res- with respect and reverence as you're holding it. My personal integration took four years on the single journey, and it was just living into that truth on the daily took four years. And really, it's lifelong for a lot of these experiences. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a big thank you to Carl Ortigo and for everyone in the mainstream and in the underground psychedelic exploration community who is coming to the work with such a degree of inquiry, respect, and reverence. So on that note, some of my takeaways from the episode are, if you are considering doing psychedelic work at all, please take the time to educate yourself and do the research. Read Michael Pollan's book, read Kyle Ortigo's book, ask people, you know, drop in and really know your why, and then plan for integration afterwards. Plan to take the opportunity to really make the most out of this experience and carry it into your daily life. And then the last takeaway for me is, can we really inquire into the frameworks within which we're nested, like the psychological lens, which I talked about quite a bit last week. You know, the invention of the psychological lens is relatively recent. And to accept the full spectrum of human experience as extraordinary and wondrous and amazing, and to even question some of the contexts that we've been raised in that tell us that only material reality is is what's really going on. We know there's more. If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate referrals. I would appreciate reviews. We have 25 star reviews on Apple right now and all five star reviews on Spotify. Spotify has also just added the ability to comment or ask a question about an episode within their app. So if you want to engage some more, I am all for it. I'd I'd love to hear from you. Please support my companies, rosewoman.com for intimate and body care products and lifestyle products that honor uh, your own embodiment with reverence and radiantfarms.us for psychoactive gummies that are gentle and kind and legal. All right, wishing you an amazing beautiful, expansive, optimized journey in this beautiful body, no matter where you are in your journey, whether you're just a young person or you're a hundred, whether you're a man or a woman or somewhere in between, may your personal, unique, one-of-a-kind, divine child essence shine and may you live beyond the ordinary life. See you next time.